0: Hello and welcome to the Untuned Podcast, a show presenting
1: stories of impact in this always connected and fast-moving world. Now, here is your host, Gaurav Kumar. Hello and welcome to the first episode of second season of the Untuned Podcast. This is your host, Gaurav, and today I am beyond excited to have a very, very special guest on my show, Prantik Majumdar. Prantik is an entrepreneur and venture investor and acts as a digital transformation catalyst. After pursuing a major in computer engineering and a minor in technopreneurship from the National University of Singapore, he kickstarted his career with the Singapore government. Prantik started his journey as an entrepreneur with Happy Marketer in 2011, where he spent a decade building and scaling up one of the best and most awarded independent digital marketing services firms in the region. In February of 2019, he had a successful exit when Happy Marketer was sold to Merkel, which is part of Densho International. Today, Prantik is serving as a managing director of the CXM Group at Densho Singapore. Apart from his corporate role, he is an active angel and venture investor, mentor, advisor and a speaker. Outside of his work, he is an avid cricketer, enjoys political discourse, is intrigued by the behavioral economics and is enjoying parenting a four-year-old toddler. In this candid chat with Prantik, we discussed about various aspects of impact and value creation through entrepreneurship. So let's hear from Prantik. Hi Prantik. welcome to the Untune podcast. Thank you so much for your time. How are you doing today? Hi Gaurav, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I've been
0: listening to some of those episodes and you know, seeing the great work that you're doing. I'm doing good and uh, looking forward to our conversation this evening.
1: Thank you so much. All right, so um, I have known you for a while. I think few years now, and you know, I've have, I've have to admit here on this podcast that I've been superbly impressed, uh, you know, finding you inspirational, aspirational uh, all this while and learning about all the things that you have been doing. One thing that I've never asked you, I've heard about this in some of the other podcasts, some of the other platforms, but I'm taking this opportunity to go into the little bit of details of how all of this started. What made you? decide that you wanted to jump into an entrepreneurship, wanted to build something on your own, than say picking up a job?
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I think to be honest, uh, there are two parts to this. One is I think the genesis of this uh, honestly started during my university days at NUS. Uh, I was very privileged and fortunate to be part of their, uh, you know, one of these courses that they were pioneering in 2003. So, whilst I came uh, from India and Indonesia to NUS to study computer engineering, uh, there was this course called Minor in Technopreneurship. So, as the name suggests, Entrepreneurship in Technology. It was just a six module course, but it was life changing purely from an aspirational perspective. You know, for a typical uh, middle class Indian uh, family person who has aspired to be an engineer to just get exposed to the world of product development financial engineering, marketing, business development was very, very exciting. So we used to have these usually evening classes uh, and it was absolutely phenomenal. So I think that was one, that exposure, but that wasn't enough because to be honest, thereafter I joined the Singapore Civil Service, a fantastic place to launch my career, really had a great three and a half years there. But a lot of that, you know, because my role in the government was also to work with startups, that exposure kind of Continued, And I think when I look back, I was also, you know, you're typically you're also part of some macro movement. So I think in that 2003 to 2007, Singapore itself had, you know, had kind of put in a lot of investments and effort right. to grow the ecosystem. And I think, uh, you know, I was, I was a product of that. And thereafter, it was opportunity uh, and luck that happened when uh, Rachit, my, uh, you know, dear friend and co-founder mm-hmm. at you know Happy Marketer, he essentially reached out to me saying, look, you know, I'm I'm start, you know, I've started Happy Marketer. Would you want to join in? So I think it was a bit of inspiration and you know being part of a larger macro movement, mm-hmm. matching uh, with the opportunity that came thanks to Rajit. So it's probably a combination of that. It really, unlike his story, uh it really wasn't the case that it, you know what, I am not gonna do a job and let's try this thing out. Right.
1: Uh so yeah, I, that, that's pretty interesting to know, I think, because, you know, uh, I have been assuming every time I talk to somebody who has built things, ground up, uh, you know, there has been in most of the cases, I would say, if I'm not biased, that there is an incremental effort and, and you know, there's this whole mindset thing and say that, well, I'm not cut out for a job, right? So, um, you know, having said so, when you're we talking about, uh, you know, how you and Rachid came together, there was, of course, there is uh, alignment of the. Thoughts, interest, friendship, plus uh, the macro environment that was supporting you to bring about a new idea. But I assume there would have been a pressure of differentiation as well. Right? How do you 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 started a marketing agency? Now, if I looked uh, and if I understand the business well, over the years. Uh, happy market here, um, you know, has been really able to differentiate in terms of being a very tech-focused agency. Um, I assume back those days, uh, it would have been more of, uh, you know, media creative dri- creative driven, you know, sort of agency landscape. So how how did you guys think about having a unique value proposition about what you wanted to do through, through entrepreneurship, right, rather than just replicating one of the other business models?
0: Yeah, and I think the way it happened was because genuinely speaking i think we were misfits in the marketing industry because we were too uh, you know we were trained in computer science and computer engineering my uh, work stream was mostly in brand consulting or uh, you know uh, or in government led business development initiatives so to be honest we did not know the word agency when we started one it's only much later did we realize that oh we are part of this industry called Uh, you know, digital or marketing agencies. When we started, it was very clear. All we knew was, uh, you know, we wanted to help our clients build websites, drive traffic. And now when we look back and think about it, it was really about uh, being early in the game, being misfits back then. And Mm -hmm. eventually, we kind of, as the story evolved, we said, you know what, maybe this is an interesting secret sauce is how do we institutionalize being misfits? And I think the whole point was, you know, uh, as we hired people, if I look at our roster of people, yeah. very few are marketing trained. Mm-hmm. Very few are uh, you know come from the marketing agency world. These are folks from who uh, who come from the school of economics, arts and social science who come right. from engineering, who come from law. And the idea was because that's what that diversity of thinking and experience, I think allowed us to be misfits over time. Also it allowed us to be ahead of the curve, which means, you know, even when the broader industry caught up with performance marketing and digital marketing and programmatic, we said, you know, what's next? So we moved into consulting training. Thereafter, we moved into cloud AI ML led development work. And, you know, so I think that once we realize that being a misfit or an early mover, whilst it has its risks and challenges, uh, it takes some time for the market to kind of realize and value that. I think it also gives you an advantage. And for us,
1: the idea was to kind of institutionalize that within our organization. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty impressive journey. I think, uh, you know, if you look, look at where today organizations are going, where the business landscapes are going, uh, you know, these are the things that, that everybody started realizing, like being cross-functional, interdisciplinary, right? How do you fuse people coming from different backgrounds? And and, and now people are talking about it. but doing this, you know, 10 years back, uh, is is pretty impressive, like, right? and it's kind of setting some sort of benchmark in terms of how do you have kind of a differentiation when you're talking about a new idea. Now, you know, while I reflect on that, uh, one thing that you know, and in my personal job role, uh, my my experience working with uh, the corporate or some of the individual projects that I have I have worked on, uh, if I look at innovation, right, um, you know, I mean, impact creation and value creation is at its core. Now there are different ways that an an entrepreneur uh, or or a business guy or even an individual would think about creating value. Uh, More specific in terms of entrepreneurs, like this could be a new product or a solution. It could be a new category. It could be uh, new ways of providing employment, right? And, And there are too many of them. So how does one really find their focus, right? So how did you know that what is when it comes to creating value through what you're doing, what you're building, what is it that you want to focus on? Which is this niche of the areas uh, that you wanted to focus on and and get sort of in, uh, you know longer term gratification around? How do you how do you fo- how how does one focus on this? Like what is the real impact or value creation area that that I want to put everything that I could?
0: You know, for us, I think one thing that always uh, drove us, you know, we realized that whilst many of our NUS batchmates and Our friends were starting product companies and, you know, which were uh, backed by VCs, etc., where they were trying to optimize for uh, DAUs, MAUs, growth. We were a plain vanilla, simple services business. And most usual, normal businesses, which are not venture-backed, high-growth, you know, there's one simple formula that kind of drives the business. And this also holds true for the venture growth, just that they have the luxury of Ah, uh, funding, right? So whether you're a chicken rice stall or a happy marketer or a hair salon, the formula is profit equal to revenue minus cost,
1: or other revenue.
0: You know, yeah, profit equal to revenue minus cost, yeah. right? And so for us, it was very simple that one of the challenges that we had seen in uh, the world of marketing. Now, bear in mind, we had started just after the global financial crisis, right. and this was also the time when you know typically when a crisis happens. And we had gone through two or three uh, rounds of such crises in Singapore in the last twenty years. Usually, after travel and entertainment, uh, marketing and advertising budgets get cut, and that kind of got us thinking that why is this the case? Are we not important enough, right? Why do we get cut yeah. before tech budgets or other budgets? And the answer was the industry in itself had or has uh, done disservice to itself because we make ourselves uh, feel as though it's a good to have or it's an option, right? It's like a a lipstick or a packaging over the core product and so that's when we realized the challenge in our marketing industry and it exists till date is that it's considered to be an afterthought for good to have and that's because it does not or it's perceived not to have an impact on the top or the bottom line yeah. so we said whatever that we do in digital uh, or in ad happy marketer it has to either increase revenue or decrease cost so that was a core principle to your question How do we decide what to do and what to focus on? Mm. I think we kept it to first principles that okay if by running Google ads on SEM or by doing SEO in the early days, if we could drive higher leads which led to higher sales may not be causality at least high correlation, we're good. At least we know we feel comfortable that our clients are making more money or you know maybe through some cloud or machine learning we are able to drive productivity which reducing cost right so i think that mantra of keeping that formula simple many a times our marketing industry gets bedazzled by awards and these amazing campaigns which honestly are very good it's just that unless and until you're able to kind of draw the line to some sort of attribution to a business goal um you know then it becomes very difficult you become a good to have so that's the
1: formula we use to kind of decide what's going to be our future and what do we focus on. Yeah. And that's a very valid point because, I mean, this is something that I have always uh, seen as a challenge in, in my work experience, right? So I, I started my career with data science consulting, analytics consulting, and there's always been a challenge that the buck stops at a place wherein you don't see a return, uh, client doesn't see a return. And then you are like, well, I mean, you are stuck with the dashboards. Is that the value that you are creating? What is going beyond that? And you know, organizations internally, I think situation has definitely improved. The awareness, the the structural, I would say, operationalization of how data and and and, and marketing works, data-driven marketing works, had changed. Uh, but you know, having that as a DNF in organization is is one off, right? And and that should be appreciated. Um, uh, yeah. Um, So so with that, I wanted to shift the gears a little bit from from, from Happy Marketer and wanted to talk about the larger ecosystem, right? Because I think um, I have seen you, you know, you've been pretty active, uh, you know, in the ecosystem, supporting the startup ecosystem. Um, If I talk about the Southeast Asia startup ecosystem, uh, and if I have to look at a transparent view of what's working, what's not working, what are your thoughts? You know, when you talk about funding, whether you talk about, you know, they are incubators, there are you know there is of course economic support that comes from governments and probably i think you can you, you can speak for uh, singapore and india uh, that's what my guess is but uh, generally if i talk about this region right what are the challenges uh, and you know uh, what is working what is not working for the startup ecosystem
0: yeah that's a good one and i think you know the answer depends on the geography because obviously asean while it's a, it's a fantastic economic block of nearly 600 million people and you know, the progressively very, very internet friendly, the, uh, the, the broader macroeconomics and the support structures are very different. So I think if I look at this region and let's say if I include India as well, mm. I think, you know, in ASEAN, Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam is where the startup ecosystem is the most mature. And I'll quickly come to the, as to what's the ecosystem like and what's working, what's not working. And likewise, India, I think just in the last uh, five years, the ecosystem has matured so much and you know just this year for example despite such a difficult time that india is facing in the health crisis we have over uh, 14 unicorns and as a result of all the good work that's been happening over the last four five years so when you talk of the ecosystem i was quite uh, fortunate and privy to kind of actually you know see this being planned and developed in the singapore context because as you know in singapore nothing's left to chance so right. in singapore when i was in the government I was part of the ecosystem development team. And so we literally had to build value chains. So this is about circa 2005, 2006, where you had to work with the university and their commercialization arms. That how do we take R and D projects? How do we take research ideas from the labs and start commercializing them? Then once a few of them, you know, the pilots work out and there are some industry matching programs, how do we put them through, Uh, uh, incubators or accelerators. Once that happens, how do we ensure that the funding ecosystem that Singapore has or the region has enough and more venture capitalists? So, for example, the Singapore VC Association, SVCA, has done a great job where we have nearly 200 plus uh, venture capitalists today in Singapore, right? And initially, 2009, 2010, for example, uh, the VCs were based out of Singapore for tax reasons, but the money went outside in China, India. But today that's changing because The government has matching schemes, so on and so forth, right? So the ecosystem typically starts with, you know, how do I create an environment where either naturally entrepreneurs are coming out to kind of set up companies to solve problems, or how do I nurture entrepreneurs through universities or schools? So I think the Singapore system is more, you know, well-planned, top-down, and it's a very uh, deliberate process. But in India, Indonesia, you know, it's part of the system. Just there is so many. There are so many problems to solve. The yeah. countries are so large, and I think the risk appetite is much higher there in society in general. Uh, so you would see a lot of parallels between India, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, so to speak. But Singapore is a very different beast altogether. So in terms of what's working well across all these, uh, at least four markets, I think the few common points is there are tons of very good accelerators and incubators. That's great. Yeah. I think funding wise each of these markets they have done a great job to kind of attract uh, vc and private equity money singapore of course goes an extra step where the government has made a very uh, friendly policies for angel investors for uh, you know external capital to kind of come in from a taxation perspective you have the vcc structure in singapore now india indonesia lagging behind on that front so i think from a funding perspective it's absolutely uh, you know, you can't be in a better time than today. You have consulting firms helping out. You have partnerships with industry associations so that, you know, you could do pilot projects and get I- initial contracts. So, a lot of these things are, I think, going quite well. I think from a Singapore standpoint, or even the, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, I think one area where there is a couple of areas where there is difficulty is one is talent. Right. And this especially holds true for Singapore because it's a small country and you've got to balance uh, various uh, socioeconomic, political nuances as well. So access to good talent, uh, I think that's going to be a steep challenge uh, for Singapore and the region, I dare say. Right? The other is relative to Western markets, I think we don't have that many exit massive exit story so just yesterday I was speaking to yeah. a logistics startup out of Vietnam and he said one of his dreams is to take the company public uh, in NYSE and I said why do you say that he said because you know no other Vietnamese startup till date has been has gone IPO and NYSE and that's my dream as a Vietnamese so you know we've had a few exits we of course have uh, the grabs pack story we have the Gojek Tokopedia potentially yeah. the list as well but We don't have massive IPO stories from the region, so we all the region also needs guidance on that exit. I think we have investments, we have growth stories, but blockbuster exit stories. I think uh, this region needs uh, some guidance on that front.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a very valid point. Um, But yeah, I mean, of course, I absolutely agree with this whole approach of uh, being a systematic sort of innovation. Um, path versus, uh, you know, all kind of ad hoc innovations. And, and this also depends upon the, the, the risk profile of the country, population, and all those kind of, and, and also the uh, the socioeconomic structures wherein right? there could be different kinds of problems to solve. Um, and in that sense, uh, I've myself realized that Singapore is pretty, uh, I would say, conducive, right, in sense of, uh, you know, uh, having more and more opportunities towards people who want to wish to start up. So uh, yeah, no, good to know that uh, you know. And then I wanted to now move on to the uh, the topic that 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 I've that's very close to me. And I wanted to first congratulate you and uh, your wife Dipti, for doing what what you guys have been doing um, for uh, you know supporting the COVID situation in India right now. Uh, and, and you know I wanted to uh, sort of extend that topic to the social impact value creation part of entrepreneurship uh, and learn a little bit more about. Um, you know you know a couple of things that I've observed with the initiatives that you are working on right now right uh, the one that that you and Dipti has uh, you know have uh, you know worked upon over the last few months uh, that has that has great success uh, also the one that 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 is uh, under progress with Thai um, now one thing that I've observed is that when I look at social impact or value creation by uh, people in business right there is a systematic Approach to it, so people have their foundations, right? Uh, companies have CSR, so on and so forth, and these are, you know, supposed to be incremental impact and ongoing sort of things. While the situation right now it has been, you know, I would say pretty uh, ad hoc, um, you know, impulsive um, breakthrough, if I could say so. But the initiatives uh, look immensely successful to me. So, what is the magic formula here? Like, how these kind of initiatives, like, what is the reason behind? this great success that you have got into this initiative uh, plus uh, you know everything that is like fundraising in a very short amount of time what what is the driving force behind this kind of success
0: yeah i think the key word that you used is the driving force right i think you know and this holds true for whether it's a business or not-for-profit social enterprise fundraising is if that if there is you know that that fire in the belly, that that sense of urgency. To be honest, that's where the genesis of you know any sort of success is. That you know how passionate and how strongly how strong is one's conviction to kind of go through the course. Because anything it takes time and effort. In this case, you know I can share with you. I think what really changed is you know I think the 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 fire in the belly or that conviction came from the fact that one fine weekend we were just you know chatting my wife and I and we realized you know, in every other WhatsApp group that we are part of, there are broadly two kinds of conversations happening. Either obviously the unfortunate news of how uh, how dire the situation back home in India is and, uh, you know, how the government isn't doing much. So either people are stressed or they're, they're sharing sad stories or they're being rather critical. Mm-hmm. Or there were other stories of, you know, what what is it that we can do? And we've done this before last year during the, uh, the migrant crisis, you know, when India went into lockdown. And right. we said, look, it's what's really critical is to do something now rather than you know you can debate till the cows come home as to what could have been done different and you know uh what should be the right policy and all of that so that was the genesis then we said okay let's quickly evaluate what is it that we can do urgently because every hour every day lost is a few lives or a few thousand lives potentially lost so we said you know what yes money can't solve everything but at least it's a good start And our goal was at two levels, money, yes, because that could allow us to procure, uh, you know, certain medical supplies. B was also to kind of create a a movement which has good momentum. And that's the power of, you know, doing a crowdfunding campaign. So we said, you know what, simple, we'll do a dollar for dollar matching crowdfunding campaign on a platform like Mm Mila, whose founders we are good friends with. And let's just spread the word. And you wouldn't believe, right? I mean, Within so we started with a modest target of USD twenty five thousand. Within mm. seven to eight hours, we kind of reached there. Within two days, we crossed hundred thousand, and you know within a week we were I think close to 180 k. And what was very very heartening is probably every other media house in Singapore covered the story. Mm. And the point is not about oh wow great initiative. Yes, it obviously felt good. You know we could obviously uh, collect the uh, funds uh, you know and pass it on to. Uh, a couple of NGOs which procured the oxygen concentrators. And hopefully a few hundred thousand lives are saved because of that. But I think, you know, what gave us most satisfaction, Gaurav, is the fact that so many people across 10 countries uh, reached out and said, you know what, thank God you started a movement. Thank God you gave us a chance to do something. And to me, what's important is a lot of us feel that we as individuals are powerless. Only a government can act. We only have the right to criticize and you know uh, ask questions. Now those yes, in a democratic setup, those are fundamental rights. But I think the onus is on us. Each of us should and can do even a little bit. And I'll give you a quick you know uh, instance of two three people who said, you know what, we have donated, but we want to do a little bit more. So there were a bunch of artists, right? One of our ex Happy Marketer staff, Rhea, an old school friend, Tejas. Uh, Rachit's mother, who's a great artist, uh, Vandana Dayalji, they all came and said, you know what? We also want to do it in our way. We are artists. So you know what? We'll donate paintings and collect funds and contribute. Or maybe we'll do digital portraits for some of the top donors or top sharers. So that, that really felt good because, you know, it's not just the money. You're kind of utilizing your craft to create awareness and do something. There was a MBA student at HEC Paris who said, you know what I'm doing? rep courses for MBA students in India. I'm going to make a simple condition that if you show me proof of donation on this Help India Breathe campaign, I'll do the course for free, right? So to me, it's it's that the money absolutely paramount, but that feeling that, you know what, a movement gets people to think creatively, to contribute in their own little way. uh, I think that's, honestly, that's what leads to a success of anything of this sort. It's really a, a digital movement Mm. Uh, that a small little spark can kind of create and hopefully, you know, all of us can, it's going to be a long battle we all know and not just because, not just because this is for something in India. Tomorrow there could be something in Singapore, yeah, yeah. in Malaysia, right? Our message is, you know what, let's all do whatever little that we can and uh, not wait for others to take action.
1: Yeah, no, I I think for me, what is amazing—I mean, it's a great, great job—and you know, I can't, can't congratulate enough um, you and Deepthi for for taking steps, and also because the the result that I see is there is a. of a change systematic change in the way we look at potential of people uh, to generate that network effect in terms of social impact right because there is a clutter of um, different kind of campaigns and fundraising movements and stuff and people are confused and I think this is uh, underrepresented in terms of what people can people think that they can do and contribute so activating that is is I think is a great achievement. Right. I mean, uh, irrespective of uh, uh, how many million dollars it looks like in terms of fundraising from from X number of initiatives. Uh, but that energy, I think and it's, it is felt across. Right. So, I mean, you rightly quoted about the media capture and all of those. Uh, it, there There is a warmth in this whole message. So so thank you again for doing that. And uh, with this, I just wanted to shift gear and ask you a few things on the personal side, if if you don't mind. <laughs> so. You oh know, looking, at, <laughs> looking at your journey, um, right? And uh, I, as an individual, also have quite a bit of interest areas that that I always struggle with in terms of time management, right? Um, plus our personal priorities and all of that. And and as much as I know you, uh, you're you doing plenty of stuff. Now with that, how does it reflect into one personal relationship, but also your personal priorities and and how... Uh, and what are some of the good things that I've come across in terms of, you know, you and your wife and uh, the, the whole family, you know, working towards a common goal or a common vision, or what could be the challenges that uh, if not you, uh, other people face when they when they get on a journey like this?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And, you know, something very close to my heart. And I, firstly, I must, uh, you know, congratulate you and appreciate what you do in terms of, you know, your writing, poetry, and, you know, some of the stuff that you've uh, I still remember the particular audio that I listened, uh, one of your poetry around uh, a train journey, if I'm not wrong. So I, it's great, and I think these are the kind of things that you know inspire you. And you know, from my angle, I think both uh, Dipti and I, I think uh, something common about us. We come from very different uh, work, walks of life, but I think what's common is a fairly action-oriented people. We need something, you know, in Hindi they say the kira, right? We we need something to kind of keep us going beyond beyond our work. And I think uh, there are two, three things that kind of drive us in that sense that we want to be able to do uh, something that helps us grow as individuals and as a couple, uh, we want to do something. We want to stay involved in you know, social activities that allow us to connect with other people or do good, because especially after having uh, you know, ayan our four and a half year old child, it also gives us a, ch- a chance to kind of engage with him also set, hopefully, uh, certain good examples. So I guess we're trying to kind of, in a way, we kind of joke with each other that we are maximizers, right? We suddenly have a free weekend and we're like, oh God, what do we do next? Uh, We literally, this week, we felt that way because now that the fundraisers are kind of gradually coming to a close, we're like, okay, what's the next project? So coming to time management, you know, I I remember my grandfather was an eminent scientist. He used to always say, look, all of us are blessed with uh, the same 24 hours. So it, it really comes down to I guess priorities and how productive one is, uh, and but there are different ways of going about this. My wife, she is very structured, methodical, mm-hmm. uh, very well planned. Of course, her her job, you know, she works as a uh, as a senior consultant at uh, NuH in the accident emergency department. Oh, right. So obviously, precision, being structured and organized, you know, mm-hmm. comes part of that uh, her, her uh, you know her job. For me, it's a bit different. So, if she would plan and do things in a structured way, that's how she prioritizes and plans things. For me, uh, it's pretty much the reverse. I think I'm quite a scatterbrain. It's like I would, I could be doing this podcast right now, but I could be multitasking. I could be doing, uh, you know, in the next hour, I probably might go for a run. So it, it's it's uh, it's not that structured and well planned. But there is that, there is that fire, enthusiasm, passion, and eventually, uh, you know, within the. 12 13 hours in the day that i might uh, you know be working or awake you know a, a lot of things kind of get done so to me i think one is you could be structured unstructured doesn't matter ultimately yeah. whatever floats your boat and you know makes you productive the other is uh, you know what it's one's view in life so and i think again the, this general approach would be do a few things but do it to perfection mine has been a, a lot about pace over perfection and, you know, even at the work front, I see this, my business partners, some are way more structured and, you know, perfection driven. For me, it's more about volume. I really thrive on volume. So I think it ultimately one has to, over time, it happens over time. You need to understand what drives you, right? So for me, that pace, the volume, the exposure, meeting people, those are, I'm very much externally driven, to be honest. But yeah. for people like uh, you know Deepthi or even some of my business partners, it's very much intrinsic motivation. So uh, once you figure out what's your motivating factor, uh, you just need to you know do what you need to do and uh, thrive on it. So that's the way typically uh, you know we try and say you know what let's do our thing. Let's we agree on a goal, agree on a project like let's say help India breathe, but we go it our way. Now to your question, it's never all. Uh, you know, all easy and all roses. It's it's obviously because with conflicting styles, there's only 24 hours, and with a you know kid in the toe and now with the lockdown, it's yeah. obviously challenging. You we would have uh, bad days and arguments of you know you know why am I not spending enough time with the kid or why did I do it this way? I would have other expectations. So you know that's in any partnership, relationship, marriage, yeah. etc. You you've got to deal with that, right? There is I I wish maybe. 30 years into my marriage, I might have uh, saner advice, but I think right now my general philosophy is, okay, if there is an issue, tackle, move on, tackle, move on. Uh, It's an iterative process. Uh, That's just the way
1: currently we're learning to deal with the situation. Uh, That sounds very familiar, (laughs) I think. the situation actually I'm also very uh, sort of scattered types right so I, 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 I like to do too many things uh, but one thing that I have learned with with you know whatever I have done uh, so far and, and you know you quoted about my poetry and stuff that I follow follow my passion around is that I think uh, at some point in time we realize that there is one thing that you long for right and it's good, it, it doesn't have to be a tangible uh, outcome to describe right so for example for me I was doing a, a lot of stuff, right? At, at some point in time, uh, you know, thinking around uh, more of a business ideas and stuff. And, and the reason that I am sticking to poetry uh, right now is that um, I I've, I've had a conversation with myself and I realized and, and, and I replied to myself and saying that, hey, what I'm looking for actually is how could I minimize the intermediaries and have a direct reach with the people, right? I mean, it doesn't have to then measured in terms of how much money I'm making out of it right away, right? And, well, I mean I can find a way to if I wish to. But so so that has become like very core and very close to myself, right? Which is where I said, well, I, I get an absolute gratification if I there is a direct connect with people, right? Absolutely no intermediaries. So somebody is in despair, I I write a line, I, I work on a project that influences Uh, uplifts the mind of somebody that's a great outcome for myself so I think similarly uh, all of us when it comes to even doing multiple things uh, one or the other thing is sticks through us over a period of time and that's what I have learned and I'm still learning Uh, uh, okay uh, so another thing and this is a very related question but but this is also a personal question uh, to me is that you know with technology around right we are we are always connected and that's actually the core theme of this podcast the reason why I started the podcast was also this is that we live in an always connected world there is there is a constant urge and need to respond right how do you keep yourself sane into this right you're you're connected right business-wise you're connected with so many things that you're doing and specifically in the context of technology how do you what are some of the best practices from a lifestyle perspective, that you follow, that we can we can, we can take away from from this conversation, and some of the people can follow. Because I know many many people, and to an extent, uh, why I say that this is personal to me is that at some point in time, a couple of years back, I I was diagnosed with an anxiety general generalized anxiety disorder, and this has to play a lot of role into this. Right, like my the way I interact with technology. So I think this is a huge problem that people may or may not acknowledge. But uh, what do you do to keep yourself sane? Yeah, it's a
0: you know it's a very hot topic right now around you know anxiety management, well-being. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, you know a challenge that all of us have to grapple with. And again, you know, going back to the previous question, I think it's important for all of us to a introspect and find out what works for each other, and not expect a standard answer. And I'll tell you why. Because I thrive on volume, and you know. Uh, I'm a people person and I love interacting. I am someone who doesn't get too bothered with, uh, you know, multi-channel conversation. You know, I could be on WhatsApp, email. uh, You know, I'm generally one of those impulsive quick responders, right? Like I said, I'm not a structured person. So, for example, for someone for whom it may be a chore or, you know, it creates stress, there are obviously best practices of, you know, schedule. That means check email thrice a day, you know, get them batch processed, move on, right? Uh, if you're looking some people obviously subscribe to the idea that you know what I'm not going to check whatsapp after sunset or I know a couple of friends for whom it's such a a big issue they've actually they when they sleep they sleep with the wi-fi router off right so you know you need to find out what works the best for your family and yourself right so like I said I sit on the continuum where uh, what I do for myself is you know during the day to be honest I am quite uh, attached to my phone much to my uh, yeah. wife or my kids uh, dismay so i would generally be quite a, a fast responder to email or whatsapp what i have da- done though is i uh, i stick to one or max two channels of communication so for me easiest is whatsapp uh idly so i would you know i'm quite an open book that way my number is on linkedin as well so whoever needs to reach me i'm good yeah. i would typically uh, you know I'm, a, I'm an inbox zero person so what would irritate me is if I haven't seen or responded right mm-hmm. so I would prefer people reach out to me on uh, you know whatsapp and I would respond to people uh, you know as quickly as possible I generally try and avoid most whatsapp groups unless you know there's something of interest right but individual messages I would try and clear every day uh, because I know if I don't it would be a botheration. same with work email right so that's That's my style. So I would just limit the channels, but I would be quick and uh, thorough and, you know, quick and thorough in my responses. But having said that, like I said, a lot of my colleagues, I think they prefer that, you know what, I have fixed hours. That if it's work, only email and I would stop checking emails, uh, you know, or or I'll switch off notifications uh, and I'll stop checking emails, let's say, beyond 6 p.m. Some people, you know, like I said, go all the way to even switching off routers and networks as well. So I think to me, the best practice is really, it's such a personal thing. Ultimately, find a way to kind of figure out what keeps you sane and happy. For me, in the day, very happy to be as uh, quote unquote addicted to different platforms, respond quickly, get the work done, do the volume of work, interact with people. In fact, for example, for me, a lot of people prefer voice. Uh, calls, somehow yeah. for me, asynchronous, I mean, that, that's a huge thing for me is one of the ways I keep myself sane, and this may go against, you know, conventional wisdom, for me, it's asynchronous communication, I'm somehow not, you know, calls somehow, just doesn't suit me. So I'm happy, you message me when you can, I'll message you when I can. Yeah. So, and it's in writing, right? So I can search and refer to it uh, in the future as well. Uh, voice. Sure. I mean, with friends and family, it's a different story. Yeah. But anything outside of personal life, I think for me, uh, text asynchronous messaging is a huge help. So, yeah, I think that's how I kind of manage it. But and I think the other thing is to respect. If someone is not like you, it's absolutely fine. I think we just need to be able to respect that. And that trust, like this element of trust is so critical in an organization today that just because two people have different styles does not mean you need to kind of, you know, go and say, hey, here's the best practice, follow what I'm doing, right? You're yeah. going to trust that, hey, look, as long as the common goal is established, let the other side, your team members or your clients, flourish in their own best practice. I think that's another way, you know, that we could have a peaceful coexistence.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a hard thing to accept, right? I mean, everybody has their own ways of uh, figuring yes. out and what does it work? like? For me, I, I force myself to have sort of a schedule and uh, switch off after a certain time in the night and I, I don't look at I don't keep my phone near my bed and things like that. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same for everybody, but uh, yeah, I mean this, this, has, this has become one of the bigger challenges. So uh, Pranthik, we are almost uh, moving towards the end and I have just one more question before I ask you to uh, share some of the learning right and, and, and advice uh, as usual to a podcast format. Uh, in terms of people who would um, want to do something, right? People who want to follow their passion, people who are who have been waiting to work on an idea. Uh, some of the things that you have learned. But before that, uh, I just also wanted to hear your view on uh, when I look at you, right? And and when I we started this conversation, and I find a lot of those things inspirational. Uh, is you know the that that you know hunger to give back, right? And it's not just only a social charity or a social impact initiative but even at a community level right i mean i I have been just trying to you know i've been struggling to understand that like why some of the entrepreneurs some of the people who have established their own businesses ideas are giving more to the community even even just the startup community and some are not is there a systematic challenge it or is just a personal preference
0: Whilst I don't have, you know, research on this, my anecdotal feeling is, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I meet and I speak with, to be honest, there is, uh, there is a bunch, uh, whether they are entrepreneurs or, you know, corporate leaders or professionals, uh, th- there are two buckets that I've seen. There's one bucket that does it, uh, you know, from a philanthropy and a tax saving perspective, and again, nothing wrong, right? That's, ape, that's ape, uh, they want to do good and they want to maximize the finances, that's one approach. There's also another bucket where I genuinely feel a lot of the entrepreneurs, uh, because, you know, entrepreneurship is a game where the risks and the odds, the risks are high and the odds are against you. So especially when people kind of taste success over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I think many of them feel a sense of gratitude, a sense of commitment to the society that's helped them grow and succeed. Uh, And I'm I'm not saying that this can't hold true for corporates and executives, It very well could, right? Uh, it's yeah. just that because when you're up against such odds and when you if and when you have succeeded you really felt like for example for me uh, the feeling is look i am really grateful to the singapore ecosystem to the university to the government to the smes that i have worked with or worked for uh, or the the policies that have led to you know whatever little success i've enjoyed and it's only right that i do something to help the next batch of entrepreneurs or next batch of students or i give back If a crisis strikes, same holds true for, you know, countries where I've grown up, India, Indonesia, right? Uh, There is an emotional connect. I can't take away the fact that my formative years have been in India, Indonesia, and there is an emotional connect. So I think it's a function of one's emotional connect, function of one's gratitude and commitment to to, to society. uh, That I think that's that's what perhaps drive a lot of entrepreneurs who have succeeded to want to give back. There's also another school of thought to say, hey, look, the, the reason of also giving back and mind you, none of this is wrong. As long as one is doing it, there are different reasons. The other is, you know what, many entrepreneurs, the larger successful ones want to ensure that the community is uh, is thriving and doing well so that the economy does well. And if the economy does well, their respective businesses uh, are likely to thrive. That's what many governments who follow Keynesian economics would do it, that how do I restart or kickstart the economy by you know, uh, pouring in money into the economy. So there could be financial, uh, economic, uh, uh, eco related, uh, gratitude related, but everyone has their own reason. Uh, but that's, you know, these, these are the perspectives that I've found as to why a lot of entrepreneurs tend to kind of, you know, uh, do what they do for society at large.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And I think I, I find the last point very interesting when you say that people also want to ensure that the community is thriving because that's where their business lives. So that's a very practical and valid reason too. All right, uh, so we are almost at the end. Um, uh, what is your uh, one sentence, one line of advice for people who are who wish to do things uh, and, and they're just waiting for, for the right days so that they can start? What's that one line of advice for people to, to get us started now?
0: I would only say two things. One is you have to decide what is it? Is that, that it's in your control? Whether it's in terms of your life circumstances, education, profession, focus on what's in your control. The other is surround yourself with goodness. And when I say goodness, it could be in terms of people, it could be in terms of books, it could be in terms of podcasts, it could be in terms of knowledge. Yeah. What really matters is, you know if you take conscious action about your destiny, about what's in your control, first things first, you're kind of, In the driver's seat and you will be far more confident and focused on what is it that you can achieve no matter how big or small your goals are secondly if you surround yourself with good people good knowledge good communities over time the sigma of that goodness will only help you Uh, yeah those are you know two learnings in my life that you know keep the hunger on focus on what you can control and just surround yourself with as much goodness as you can
1: that's that's a great advice and I'm, I'm, it's coming from wealth of experience that you've already shared uh, thank you so much Prantik, for your time I think uh, it was one of the greatest conversations uh, that I ever had on this podcast uh, I also uh, treasure your time on this podcast and uh, so much to learn from you so thanks a lot for your time today and uh, joining this podcast
0: thank you so much Gaurav for having me all the best for everything that you do both at adobe in your profession as well as with your poetry keep that fire burning and keep inspiring us thank you for having
1: me thank you so much you have a great day so that was prantik mazumda sharing his journey as an entrepreneur and talking about various aspects of how we create value through entrepreneurship and really go and achieve something through beautiful and nice ideas i thoroughly enjoyed this episode and i think you also did So stay tuned for the next episode next week with another exciting guest at the Untuned podcast.